Hello, and welcome to this episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast. Today, we are talking about Andor, Episode 11, with myself, Paul Hoppy, and Matthew Capel. All that and more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host. I'm joined, as I said, by erstwhile guest, never an actual host, Paul Hoppy. Paul, how are we feeling today? Medium. Medium, you know, continuing to appreciate the series, perhaps more than enjoy, but uh, yeah, and then, you know, getting some some physical ailments, but nothing like <laughs> the uh, oppressive crush of fascism. That That's fair. That's fair. And Professor Matthew Capel, you're once again joining us. How, how does today find you? Today finds me pretty well. I mean, my wife is in Michigan and I'm home alone, but otherwise I'm pretty well. Thank you. Well, I, I hope you get to enjoy that a little bit, but hopefully she returns soon. Uh, for those who haven't heard, Professor Matthew Capel is a professor of – I kind of think of you of pretty much every topic that comes up, you wind up having some great knowledge of. So, But I think officially it's American studies, right? You've done a lot of work on pop culture films and mythology and things like that. Yeah, American studies is what they hired me to teach, but now they let me teach anthropology too. And occasionally awesome. I teach That's writing awesome. because I get really annoyed at bad writing. Well, I'm so glad that both of you are with us, and I want to jump in, but I first want to give just a little bit of feedback that we got, and I want to apologize. A number of you have been writing into the email address, superheroethics at gmail.com. That is an email address we used in the past. I now use Matthew at theethicalpanda.com, but I realized I thought I had auto-forwarding set up from that old email. It has not been set up, so I'm responding to some feedbacks from a long time ago. But we also got one uh, fairly recently from someone who I think is going to be a guest on the podcast at some point soon. But she wrote in, this was the first paragraph, and so I wanted to share it, from Erin McGowan. My name is Erin, she, her, and I've been a huge fan of your podcast since discovering it that this last year. I love to listen along while I drive and yell my opinions at the radio like I'm right there having a convo with you guys. Your podcast has been a huge comfort when I'm anxious or having trouble sleeping. I put it on and just relax to the beautiful sounds of Star Wars. I've been a Star Wars nerd my whole life and have watched all of the Star Wars content maybe a few times too many. Don't think that's a, a thing, but uh, maybe a few times too many. Okay, to be considered normal or healthy. Again, I'll go with, I don't think healthy, but definitely perhaps normal. Star Wars has been one of my greatest comforts and sources of hope as I've worked through a difficult past year healing my mind and my body. I'm so glad you share Star Wars and its joy and hope with everyone. That was just really wonderful feedback. And Aaron, thank you so much for that. I'm really glad that uh, we've been a small help. This is one of the few times that someone can tell me that my voice puts them to sleep without me thinking it means that I'm boring. So I'm really <laughs> glad for that. And yeah, I just want to, um, I hope that you're continuing to have healing on your journey and that we continue to be a part of it. And I look forward to hopefully having you be a voice on the podcast. Yeah, that's a, a great message to hear. I hope I haven't poured too much rain on anyone's enjoyment of <laughs> Star Wars things. I, I know uh, uh, outside of this series, I definitely find uh, I'm often one of the more negative voices. But um, I it always makes me happy to see when something makes someone happy, you know. Very much so. Very much so. That's, uh, I think, to me, one of the real joys of podcasting like this is knowing that um, people sure. are enjoying it. And, uh, you know, that they're getting the same kind of joy out of it that we are. All right, so with that, let's talk about the shiny, happy Star Wars story that we continue to have unfold before us, uh, the journeys through the empire of Mr. Cassian Andor and friends. Uh, what do we think of episode 10? Episode 11, forgive me. Um, I, I think that was just a setup episode for the end, but it was also wrenching, wasn't it? Um, it yeah. uh, the fact that um, 
Fiona Shaw's character, oh shoot, Marva, um, Marva dies off camera was perfect. I thought, um, and I rushed home from classes today and sat down on the couch and watched it and promptly cried. Um, Mm -hmm. I happened to spend all day in class today talking about death, too, for some reason. And so death has been on my mind. And it was uh, the lack of a heroic death is something we need to see more of in media because most Mm -hmm. deaths are not heroic. So I was just very appreciative of that. That's such a great point, especially because as, as we've talked about on earlier episodes, even like the people who are part of the, the raid against the, the, the pay, the payroll, you know, the people who died there, they didn't die glorious, heroic deaths, you know, standing up to defend them as they flew away. They just got shot or had things drop on them. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would say like none of these deaths are cinematically heroic, mm, right? That's like, a good way to put in, it. In the, in the way that we think of in, in, you know, like most of the deaths in Rogue One, right, I think are very kind of cinematically heroic, even if they're not um, some like moment of overt sacrifice, like I'm going to, you know, fly this thing into some other thing and blow it up. Like, you know, we, we know that they're dying in an overt act of heroism, um, you know, killed by the enemy, basically. I, I would say that like Marva's death is... I think she is in an like a prolonged act of act of heroism, mm-hmm. but like very much not a cinematic one. You know, like it's not a, uh, a a stereotypically heroic death, but like she has chosen to you know remain on what is her home and kind of you know fight the good fight, even if it doesn't mean like actually going out and. Um, like actively, uh, you know, taking direct actions, uh, which, you know, I thought she was probably going to like die blowing herself up, like trying to blow up that hotel or something when, you know, when they talked about when she mentioned like what she'd been doing mm-hmm. at, at one point. Um, but like, you know, I, I think living her life the way she did at the end was like in some ways like a, an, a small act of resistance. And and so, like, I think she can be seen as being heroic without you know, it really looking heroic in a, in a really obvious in your face kind of way. I think that's a great point, especially because like one thing I was really struck by was how much we saw the community respond to her death and that it was this Mm -hmm. huge, like, I think that was such a good way of showing us just how much she meant to this community. And, you know, it ties all the way back to those first episodes where when the basically Imperial SWAT team showed up and the whole neighborhood was like banging on walls and bells and kind of coming together, like you really get a sense that she was a very big part of this neighborhood and a real leader to this neighborhood. Yeah, it's clear that there's this very strong sense of community there mm-hmm. on Ferrix, right? And I mean, we've seen that earlier, and and we see that here. Um, I I do think it's important to see, you know, natural deaths as well, e- even though we can, you know, they kept being like, turn the heat on, like, you know, and maybe she didn't turn the heat on because she wanted to save money, and so you know, capitalism kills, like, but. But it is, you know, it's I, I, I want to circle back to something from the very first episode. Mm-hmm. Tony Gilroy kind of wrote his own review of Andor um, when the uh, the supervising, you know, security person on Morlana one was proposing, like, how to write an accident report to cover up the two killings. Um, he said, make it, you know, 
sad but inspiring in a mundane sort of way. And <laughs> wow, in a in a lot of ways, like I feel like that's what this show is. It's like it's very sad, you know, from the beginning. I feel, um, but you know, there's also I think some some inspiration there. Um, but like in a mundane sort of way, you know, it's yeah. not it's not about the spectacle. It's not about, um, you know, one individual act of sacrifice. It's it's about sometimes a lifetime of sacrifice, whether that's Luthen and, you know, everything he was talking about in episode 10 or Marva just being like, no, I, I'm going to stay here. You know, like I'm, I'm staying at my home. I'm not, you know, letting the empire like drive me out of my home, basically. At that moment, I also found it very significant because it's a big problem with Star Wars um, that people empathized with the droid. Yes. Oh, the way I, I was thinking so much about you, Paul, and how you said that it was one of your favorite characters and just it, it was so painful and so beautiful the way they let us really see the droid's reaction. Uh, B2 with, with use its name as part of yeah. empathizing. Yeah. I mean, it. you know. I was at first I was thinking like Marva dying kind of reminded me a little bit of in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like Buffy's mom, just like, oh, yeah. you know, just being dead. Right. It's like this this happens. People die. And it's not always some real concrete. Oh, here was the reason. Or I mean, you know, there is a medical reason. Right. But it's not it's it's not always a story unto itself um, outside of the fact that they've died. And thinking that, you know, she was alone there, but like she wasn't alone, you know, B2 emo was there the whole time. And I mean, actually, we don't know whether whether he was there right at that moment. But I I feel like, you know, I mean, I wonder if the last three letters like EMO are chosen. I was just thinking that um, as you said it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but like I, in a lot of ways, I feel like B is is like the heart of the show, you know, and um, and sort of like the most overtly emotional character, you know, despite being a droid. And um, yeah, I, I I really loved the way they showed that. And um, um, oh, I, I forget his name, but Andor's friend, you know, talking to to B two and like st- spending okay, just one night, you know, mm-hmm. like I'll I'll stay here with you and. Um, I mean, I, I remember after my dad died, like one of the hardest things for me was, you know, I often wanted like friends to be over to hang out with and we'd hang out and then, you know, they'd go home at the end of the night. And like we even lived in the same building. So like, and you know, it wasn't like that big of a deal, but it's like there's this. I had this sense of 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 loss of, of absence, right? I mm-hmm. felt the absence of my dad being around and it was just me and my mom and um having people who were there kind of like made that feel less severe, but then, you know, they would go home and then, then I would feel that more. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I just find B like super relatable. Mm -hmm. I also thought there's an interesting contrast there. And like, we're definitely going to talk about Mon Mothma and her daughter in a few minutes, but one thing that we talked about with Mon Mothma a few episodes ago, but that has come up a lot in fiction, because I think a lot of times it's fairly true, is that often people who are kind of like great people, who are, you know, beloved of huge communities, they're leaders, they're, you know, public speakers, they're, they're people who inspire large groups, they can be wonderful family people as well, but often they're not. And I think we're getting more insight into Mon's family. And I certainly don't want to just say, oh, she's a bad mother, and that's why she's not close to her daughter. There's obviously a lot of complexity there. 
but B2 in many ways feels like kind of a halfway in between a droid. Uh, I'm sorry, he is a droid. Kind of halfway in between like another one of her children and a beloved family pet. You know, like, right. I, or, or like an animal that is part of the family. Like, I really, I, I've read a lot of stories and heard from friends about things like, you know, when someone dies and like, you know, the dog or the cat that they beloved, that, that they loved, you know, doesn't want to leave the apartment and, and, and all this kind of stuff. And I got a lot of that sense too from B2. And I don't think that happens if there wasn't a strong connection between Marva and B2. And obviously, like, Marva, you know, kind of bossed him around and, and kind of had some, you know, harsh words for him sometimes when he wasn't, you know, doing his best. But I think there was still a really strong connection between those two. And that, that to me, told me a lot about B2, but it also told me a lot about Marva and how she related not only to the community at large, but to the people in her home. Yeah, I mean, I think she was definitely, like, a little abusive and dismissive towards B2, mm-hmm. but, like... Also, you know, treated him like a person, but like the way you might treat it, like hush a a kid, right? When like other adults are over, which like, you know, not cool, but um, not not the worst, right? Right. Not the worst either. So, um, yeah, I I, I thought their dynamic like was a a bit uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. But also like very, very real feeling. And, you know, the same thing with with Cassian and and B. Like, in the very first episode, like, the way he talks to him, like, is sort of like the way one might talk to perhaps like a younger brother who it's like, oh, I I need you to, you know, keep mom from, you know, being suspicious of whatever I was doing. You know, I was out late. I need you to cover for me. And like, it it always felt like there was a, a level of of caring there and also from Marva towards towards B, especially when the, you know, the the not stormtroopers <laughs> came and, and, you know, tossed the house. Um, but like this kind of like, I don't know, it, it's like that sort of familial love where it's like almost like like taking someone for granted sometimes mm-hmm. right because like well you know they'll be there and so you know it's like well i'm just going to handle what i have to handle now and and it feels like that's you know that's been cassian's arc so far right is like always trying to deal with what's right in front of him and some of that's out of necessity and some of that's out of um you know his own choices but I, I feel like there has been this gradual arc towards kind of understanding that, you know, the, the Empire is this pervasive problem. Like, it's not something that you can really run away from anymore. And, um, you know, I, I I can only imagine, like, what he's feeling for, like, not having been there, you know, that, that he wasn't there for her. And, you know, he wanted to take her away, but, like, it turns out there wasn't anywhere to go to, really. Right. You know? <laughs> and then we all stopped and got quiet because it is sad. <laughs> it is sad. It's just so sad. Well, and Matthew, I wanted to ask you in particular about the little ritual that they have because uh, if I understand correctly, like anthropology, one of the things it, it kind of looks into is sort of the study of like, you know, rituals that people have around things like death. And, you know, I, I really love that this is one of the things that Star Wars does is just, you know, it's not a huge plot deal, but just gives us like the particular traditions and cultures of these different communities all over the galaxy. And I I was talking with someone else about how, you know, they were saying that like this idea of like uh, burning their body, like cremating them and then mixing those ashes into, you know, a brick seemed really weird. But then like 
shoving them in an ornate box and putting that box in the ground like wouldn't that seem just so weird? weird. Like, so yeah, so I was kind of curious and what your thought on how they, they sort of just, you know, didn't make a huge deal of it, but introduced that particular ritual for this particular community. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. There were like two moments in this episode that were very good anthropologically for me. Um, and that was one of them because funerary rites are really important. Um, and if you talk to people from different cultures, um, even the most accepting people are like, okay, I understand that your food is different, and I understand that you treat classes in your society different, and I understand gender works differently this way or that way. Um, but the thing that can truly get a person to feel culture shock um, is funerary rites. The way we, the way we go and deal with our dead is when it's different in another culture. It really shocks us. Um, so I thought it was, I thought it was beautifully done. I thought, um, one of the characters, uh, I think says to B2, um, she's in the stone now. And, um, mm, and that yeah. was a moving line that made it feel very much like a real culture, like a real invented culture. Um, and I thought yeah. that was just, I thought that was just fantastic to also emphasize that it wasn't going to be the kind of funerary rite that we think of. Um, which is ridiculous the way we deal with our dead, right? Um, so I love that. Um, I will just, as an aside, say the other great anthropology moment for me was um, in Luthen's shop when um, Vel goes in to talk to Luthen's colleague. Mm-hmm. When they have their little yeah. argument, she's standing right next to a Mayan calendar, um, which is a r- round disc that's sp- very specific to Maya archaeology. Um, and in Star Wars, Maya stuff is Yavin 4 stuff. Um, oh. So I, 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 I thought that was very nice to see that because you, yeah. you immediately knew where it went. And it was immediately, again, enriching the idea of the invented culture that we're getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. And especially one thing I was really struck by was the idea that, like, once you make the brick – you f- you'll find a place for it. You know, that it's not like that they're being stored somewhere. It's that the idea of like, because that's just one sentence. What it really conveys is it's not that we're building new things. It's that everything is slowly falling down and there's going to be a wall that's going to have a hole in it or something else where we need to just put a new brick in. And so we'll find a place for that brick. Right. There's, there's like a functionality there. Right. Right. Where then that person is, um, you know, like like Jimmy Hoffa gets to be part of a structure. That, <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> Even though you're dead, you still have purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. It reminded me a lot of the um, Orson Scott Card, who is an author I like. Many many people have a lot of issues with, but in one of the later books in After Ender's Game, I, I think it's Speaker for the Dead. But it's you know Ender is going off to other planets and having new adventures, and he encounters a culture where there's a lot of confusion about what people do with death and and is there something weird? And eventually they realize no, it's just that way they plant seeds like in the in the ground where they put the body. The idea being that like this new tree will be fed by the nutrients of this body as it slowly decomposes, um, and like I always thought that was such a beautiful thing, and because it's again it's being like new life being created from uh, the life that's passed, and here it's not life but it's it's building, it's it's, uh, it's shaping yeah. all that. Uh, anything else from that, or should we move on to Mon Mothma and the very creepy Girl Scouts? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, d- I did just want to say that like I I do think there's like this real challenge in trying to create 
a galaxy of cultures where, you know, you might be inclined to borrow from a bunch of, you know, real world or our world cultures, but like you probably want to do it carefully and not in a, in a way like you might do in, you know, some, some parts of like the Phantom Menace or, you know, um, and so I, I think that just to me strikes as one of the biggest challenges Mm -hmm. of, um, like creating a, a world with real cultures in it. And, um, I don't know, to get kind of the uh, anthropologist seal of approval, I, I think that means a lot. <laughs> so. I, I think when you when you um, try to borrow cultures, it can. you're exactly right. Um, so when it's well done, you have to give them a lot of credit because it's so easy right. to do poorly. Yeah. yeah. And I think what I'm exactly. really struck by, especially with that example you gave about the Mayan calendar and Yavin 4, is that not only are they trying to do it well, but they're acknowledging when they haven't done it well, you know, because... In the late 70s, I don't blame George Lucas for this, but I think in the late 70s, very few people were thinking, you know, if we shoot on location somewhere to represent an alien society, let's make sure this is an accurate representation of, of that culture that we're shooting. And, you know, Yavin 4 looks like a jungle planet and, and there's some, you know, uh, a temple that like, yeah, if you learn more, you might understand that it's, 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 uh, I think it actually was shot at one of the temples in Guatemala. I'm not, yep. uh, uh, that, that's, that is, from the uh, Mayan culture, uh, so yeah, that's correct. Yeah, there was no representation at the same of that time, at the time. At that it was time, just, um, Princess Leia's hair is a um, Navajo hairstyle. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. interesting. Okay, yeah. that's cool. Um, but yeah, and so the fact that they are now going back and honoring that, I think, is really awesome. Um, a note on just the museum or the the gallery. Mm-hmm. Apparently, a lot of these Star Wars Easter eggs. <laughs> Like, Tony Gilroy's not, like, super into the Star Wars Easter eggs. So, like, some of the set design people just, like, sneak these things into the gallery. Oh, that's awesome. And he's awesome. like, oh, yeah, that's cool. You know, <laughs> he's like, I'm not going to go trying to put all of these references places, but I'm going to hire people who know the references mm-hmm. and can, like, insert them subtly. And so they're not, like, centered in the story, but they do give this uh, this real depth. Right. I think that's, it, like, feels kind of effortless to me. That's yeah, a good like word. you said, like... It- Sorry. In an art dealer's shop, of course, you know, a place that sold historical, you know, who's it's like would have that kind of thing. And why make a bunch up when you have this very rich world? Right, exactly. So, yeah, but I love that Tony is just like, whatever, put put whatever there. Yeah, it's like, yeah okay, that's fine. That's great. I love that it works. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's not a big, yeah. Well, it's something it's you've story. said in, on this um, podcast a lot, Paul, which is, um, when fan service is done well, it's done well. But when it's done poorly, it's just horrible. Um, and it's it's that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally right. It's something that if you're if you're looking for it or if you're apt to see it, then you see it. But if you don't, it doesn't take anything away. It's not like what did what did I miss? You know, right? Like. I had to Google uh, Rakatan invaders or whatever when I was looking up some of the, you know, the, the, the blue Kyber sky stone uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> references for, from episode four. So, and, and the Rakatan is great because that's strictly from Legends. That's not from can- right. the, the, the Disney canon. That's from the Legends canon. And I think that it, there's been more and more of that. But I, this show especially, I think, is really doing a lot to sort of honor some of the stuff from the Legends canon, which I, I'm not one of those who's like mad at Disney for like, you know, turning the page and saying we're going to kind of create a new version of that canon. But I do like mm-hmm. that they're like, yeah, we don't want to be beholden to it, but kind of like the way like the MCU is a different canon from the comic books, but they still can honor things from the comic books. It, it feels like right. that's the relationship to the legends now, which I really like. Yeah. 
So, okay, let's talk about the um, Girl Scouts and uh, Mon Mothma. Um, we're not buying cookies from them, I think. Uh, oh, no. I, I have a lot to say, but I want to kind of start with either of you. What was your reaction to that scene? <laughs> Negative. <laughs> <laughs> Like, not like it's a bad scene, but just like children chanting anything, always creepy. Yeah. Just always creepy. You know, either they're, they're some sort of possessed evil beings or they're uh, some sort of possessed beings by uh, possessed by some evil, like, you know, fascism or whatever traditional creepy stuff. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to be creepy, but it's just like. There's there's been a lot of creepiness throughout mm-hmm. history, I think, in terms of, you know, indoctrinating children into some really messed up customs, which this seems to be one of. But yet again, they do the culture well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a I, I, there's a little aside um, that uh, the daughter says something about being you know, within the braid or has been braided or something. Right. That gives you this whole like implied backstory of we have this way of talking about things that involve the fact that we're all a bunch of teenage girls with braids um, that I just mm-hmm. thought was great. I mean, I did expect Jack Nicholson to come around the corner at any moment, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely got that. And I, I, I appreciated how subtle it was because like, I mean, I th- mm-hmm. to me, the implication was that, you know, this is the group of girls who want to go back to the old traditional Centrillan ways in which, among other things, girls got married at very, very young ages. And I'm guessing there's a lot of like, you know, women maybe being homemade. Like th- the implication carries a lot of like, you know, handmade tale kind of ideas. Uh, and there were little references to like you know honoring tradition and putting aside certain things but they never said like we will be loyal wives and stay home and obey our husbands like none of that had to be said it was just implied and and like i'm i'm painting the most obvious picture of it. it 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 doesn't have to be anywhere near as extreme as i'm talking about but it still gave that sense particularly because mostly what we saw wasn't the girls themselves it was the horror that val had at the idea that mon was letting her daughter be part of it and mon clearly having a space of like i don't like my daughter being involved in this but i also know that like telling my daughter she can't is just going to push her even more into her father's arms and away from me um and like i i really felt for mon at that time especially as a teenager who probably got involved in a lot of things my parents would not have wanted me involved in and i mean like i like i don't mean like you know when i was hanging out in the 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 park and my friends were smoking pot like my friends were super you know i as a teenager the first political campaign i worked on was rudy giuliani because i was a teenager and i wanted to annoy my parents and like you know i I was very dumb, uh, and at that point, he was like, this was before he became all the crazy things, and I mean, he was always crazy, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, he, um, was, he, he hadn't gone full. Yeah, he was pro-choice, he was pro-LGBT, he, like, David Dinkins had done a lot of stuff that was really anti-Semitic, like, there's there, there a whole long thing, but um, also, I was 16, I was an idiot. Um, I worked on Ruth Messenger's campaign, I just want to throw that I out think there that's a little better. quit it's a little meowed better. at me at one of her um, um, The only so. campaign I ever got paid to work on, got paid for, was a Republican um running for prosecuting attorney in Detroit. So, yeah, we, we all have embarrassments <laughs> yeah. in the past. But there was a but the paycheck. Point is, yeah, but, like, if my parents had told me I couldn't go do that, it would not have gone well. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a headstrong kid, and I think that that's... I don't know. I, I, it was just such a beautiful scene to me, because it's, it's cle- it is on the one hand showing this major kind of political tension, I think, that's happening with her wanting to push things forward. And, and yeah, I mean, like... 
it has never really been stated before, but fascism and empire are very, very often connected to returns to traditional values and, you know, tomping down on these crazy feminist ideas and stuff like that. And so just the way it was all tied together to both tell you a lot more about what's happening in the empire and tell you a lot more about what's happening in this just individual family was just it just blew me away. Yeah, I, I thought, um, again, I, I'm going to say that I think in terms of the the sort of as, the extent to which this is actually clearly a representation of a patriarchal um, culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or whether that's kind of an implication that we can get, whether it's like actually implied or we're just supposed to kind of like feel that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I mean, the only Cindrillan couple that we know of who went through these old customs is, you know, Mon and Perrin. And, you know, I mean, Mon's a senator, you know. So, like, in terms of, like, the dynamic, like, their, the dynamic of their relationship, I think, is a little um, kind of unclear in terms of what it, like, reveals about their culture. Like, we know that arranged marriages are a big part of their culture, right? right? And so the idea of, you know, marrying for love or not marrying or like, you know, basically choosing your own path is not um, their tradition, right? right? It's not their traditional custom. But the extent to which it is specifically patriarchal, um, patriarchal um, versus just being uh, <laughs> like anti-agency, I think is somewhat unclear, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but again, I think that's fine in the same way that I think, you know, the the dynamic in the ISB can feel like it's like that's what it is. And it's evocative of that, whether or not it's actually saying that that's the attitude expressed um, within there, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, and then the the separate thing is just I, I totally agree. Like, I mean, obviously, we currently also see these like. You know, there's as much as, you know, people talk about I, I'm, I'm really not a fan of generations and whatever. But like when people talk about Gen Z being this super progressive generation, it, there's also this this polarity where there's a lot of, you know, if you look at this like alt right movement, like a lot of it is is younger people. Mm-hmm. Right. Like wanting to throw back to like the way things were in the 50s, which like. You know, for some people might be pretty attractive. For some other people, it's like, yeah, no thanks. Like, hard pass on that one. I I think it's a generation thing, but it's also the – I don't want to call them immigrants, but they are from this other place. You know, she's Chantrillin, and yet she's been raised primarily in Coruscant. And certainly, like, you know, I had lots of friends who were – the main ones I think of who who did this were Jewish, but also I, I, I've certainly known uh, Latina friends or other uh, from immigrant communities or what have you, where their parents and maybe the, their grandparents were focused on assimilation. And right. now they're sort of like, okay, but actually I want to rediscover, you know, like klezmer music became a really big thing and speaking Yiddish mm-hmm. became a really big thing among kids of my generation because there was sort of a like, I want to reconnect with the traditions of, 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 you know, where my parents and my family comes from and that culture. And, you know, so yeah, I think, and that's, you're right. I'm putting a very patriarchal idea on it. And I think that's supposed to be implied, but there are, there, there are some ways to see it in more positive ways, but that, but that's just all of this is kind of connected and wrapped up in it. And like, it, it, it's again just funny that like they, the scene was maybe like, what, a minute and a half, 90 seconds, two minutes. And yet it opens so many doors that I would love to see them explore. 
Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would be sure. willing to watch an entire episode on those girls talking about their religious, cultural stuff that they're thinking through in that scene. That would mm-hmm. be an awesome episode. I mean, it would be kind of strange, but maybe it can be in Tales of the <laughs> Jedi. Um, yeah, but um, but yeah, I mean, you you can't ignore the fact that fascistic movements tend to be gender um, conservative. Um, and I think that's still, we talked about it the last time you had me as a guest, I think it's still very much part of what Gilroy's trying to do. Oh, yeah, you know, he um, did, uh, either of you see that Tony Gilroy was interviewed in um, Rolling Stone? Um, no, I didn't. He went on no, this long tangent about a biography of Stalin that he read that really influenced the way he wanted to do it um, from when Stalin was a oh, bank robber. Um Ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice one. Fun, funding the revolution by robbing banks, which is why Lenin liked Stalin. I, I love that my weird off-the-wall reference turned into not only your whole uh, statement of Leninism, but now we've proven that Gilroy is, we, we were somewhat right in what Gilroy was thinking yeah, yeah. about. Vindication. Well, Luthen does sound like one of those strange made-up Russian revolutionary names to make sure the secret police don't get you right. Stalin, Lenin, right. Luthen. <laughs> Yeah, and certainly, I mean, we, we talked about it some, but I think one, I, I was really interested this week in all the different responses I was seeing to Luthen's speech, including a lot of people who were like, yeah, yeah, that's the person we need in America. Like, that's that's the kind of revolutionary we need here. And like, on on some level, I, I agree. And on some level, I'm a little terrified about that because <laughs> I might be the person he decides might have to die. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let, let's go into him some more because I also thought the – it's funny because – and actually, Paul, I'd be curious your thoughts on this. I know one of the critiques that's often made of Game of Thrones was that you have all of these different storylines that are all happening in different parts of the world, and it's hard to see how they all connect. And in some ways, I feel like this is a little bit similar. It's just that the connective tissue that holds them all together – it feels like what we're seeing is this one awful situation and how five different groups are all reacting to it. And – so I, I, I really – it's a little bit of a side tangent there, but, or you can get to the main point of just I, I really enjoyed the conversation with Luthen and Saw and thought it it showed again a lot about how even Luthen's thinking is kind of evolving and changing about all this. Yeah, I think in terms of the structure of this show, I think the fact that there have been – there's basically like four and a third arcs. Right in the first season, mm-hmm. I think the fact that we that that Cassian himself has had these very specific um, episodes, right, which each of which are like three or two episodes or whatever, and then there's the one kind of like transitional thing. I think that's really helped f- me in terms of feeling like I'm not just watching this one kind of sprawling story, right? Mm-hmm. It does feel episodic in some way in that regard. Um, I also think a lot of the individual things that are going on in different areas have been kept... It, there's just like a tightness to it, mm-hmm. you know, um, that that I find um, just more, more appealing in terms of like the way a, a, a story is told. And... Uh, also, it's season one, so it hasn't sprawled as much. Like Game of Thrones season one felt like there were a lot of characters. By the time it got into three or four or five, it was like, 
I mean, okay, I stopped watching the show, but like, <laughs> it just seemed like they just kept, like, they were making new characters faster than they were killing them off. Yes, right? that's fair. Um, which is impressive because they were killing off a lot of characters. But <laughs> it helps here also that I feel like a lot of the characters sound different and look different from one another, mm-hmm. you know? Whereas, like, in a show like Game of Thrones, it's like, oh, some of these people look so similar. Like, how am I supposed to remember all of them? Um, but, yeah, here it does feel like there is one very central theme. Um, and it's kind of everybody kind of, like, orbiting around it. And and So it, it works for me in a way that, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the, like uh, the genius of that is none of the characters are just stereotypes and tropes. They're all, they all feel mm-hmm. like real, actual characters, real, actual individuals. Um, whereas I only watched the first season of Game of Thrones because I don't like rape shows. Um, but whereas <laughs> many of the characters in Game of Thrones, from my memory, were like, here are the three things that we see as stereotypes in medieval fantasy kind of stuff, and we'll put them in this guy. Um, and then that guy becomes that. Um, and it's 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 lazy writing and there's not lazy writing in that way in this show yeah i think it's fair i i want to defend game of thrones but it's mostly the books that i think have much more of that depth so we're just going to stay away entirely uh the books yeah. also have significantly less rape although uh, still way too much but also um, yeah <laughs> yeah also wasn't a fan of that wasn't a fan of all the torture mm-hmm. um which which here I, i've got a little something to say about that uh, in a bit but um i i do think like Game of Thrones even, like, did a little better on that regard than a lot of shows do. You know, a lot of shows are like, here's the one thing about this character, and that's all you need to know, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, you know who they are. Um, Whereas maybe Game of Thrones was like, here's the three things about this character. Um, But here it's like... I'm going to come back to the word effortless, because it feels to me... Like so many of the characters, I don't even know that much about them, but I feel like I know them as people, and... Uh, that's just I, I think it's just a union of of excellent writing, um, excellent performances. And then, you know, I mean, direction and and editing, I think, is something that like we haven't talked about that much. Mm-hmm. But like you don't you don't end up getting a show that feels this well written without having great editing, if that makes sense. Like yeah. it, I feel like editing is like like great referees in sports you know like the best of it you generally won't notice right because it just makes everything just flows so so smoothly unless it's not supposed to flow smoothly unless there's supposed to be this kind of feeling that's a little bit jarring um and then like some of the camera movement too it's like like there's like in rewatching some of the early parts like there's there's a lot of steady cam. There's a lot of like really subtle camera motions that like convey thought on the part of a character, right? Like a, an actor can sit there and make a facial expression. And you're like, oh, they're thinking. But like a subtle can you know camera moment can it, it doesn't feel like acting. It doesn't feel overt. It's like I'm only noticing it on my third time watching it and being like, oh, you know, like the first time Dedra's in a scene, she hasn't even said anything yet. And there's this way that the camera's moving around her that I can feel like what she's thinking mm-hmm. or I know that she's thinking about something that she's like, oh, what's up with the star path unit, you know, and um I'm sorry, I got lost in just praise. No, no, it's fine. And like, I mean, like one thing I did notice with her is that, and again, I, 
I wasn't studying this so people can point out things that tell me I'm wrong. I, I, it is just my impression. But a lot of the times in the early episodes, particularly when she was kind of like the plucky young, you know, the plucky officer who's trying to get her voice heard and, and we're kind of rooting for her, she was often shot from the side. And often it was just a steady yeah. shot, whereas now she's being shot much more straightforward. But also you said it's like the camera moving around her. It's because she's not the, – the world, the world is now moving around her a little bit more. Um, mm. And I just thought, yeah. thought that was really interesting. But Saw and Luthen do have an interesting well, conversation, and I do want to get some thoughts on that. Um, oh, let me yeah. let me respond to Paul by adding a kind of a general thing, um, because I think he's exactly right, and I think it's really important. But I also think that um, everybody else on the show is working to do the exact same thing so that the camera movements work. I think the set design is awesome. I think the costumes are awesome, right? Um, so I mentioned that my wife is out of town, so I'm watching too much TV, and I just rewatched Chernobyl, which is an HBO show about the mm. Chernobyl disaster. Um, the set designer from that is the set designer for Andor. Um, oh. And Chernobyl feels beautifully alien um 80s brutalist architecture soviet style the way cyril's home area feels yeah. brutalist um and the executive producer from that is the one of the executive producers on this show as well um and i think i think gilroy brought in people who are good at doing subtlety um so that that you get a lot more than you would get in like a CW show, say. Um, so right. I, I'm just really also just uh, effusive praise. It's just really effortless is the perfect word. Paul is absolutely right. Yeah. And it just, it takes such a team, mm -hmm. like one person doing something that's like really out of place can just basically break the whole spell, mm -hmm. I think, you know, and it's like, it's like, I mean, if if your set direction's not on 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 point, then, you know, you're not going to find a camera angle that's going to, you know, fix that. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it just the number of people who have to be um, delivering, you know, to to make it feel like a place that is lived in or many places, right? Because I mean, we visited a, a, a number of, of places here on this show already. And yeah, it, it just, um, I, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed them out as well because, uh, it, you know, credit to everyone basically. Yeah. I, I think the, um, the overarching themes of dealing with fascism, um, Gilroy is kind of living his response to that by, making a team that deserves credit as a team instead of mm. claiming individual ownership of the creative process. Absolutely. But anyway, so Luthen and... So now Luthen and Saul. <laughs> so speaking of people trying to work together and maybe not having the best go of it. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Poor Krieger. Is that the name of the guy yeah. we keep talking about? <laughs> yeah, Krieger. So I, just a quick note on, so Saw, uh, sorry, Luthen is talking to Saw Guerrera about Anto Krieger, right? Mm -hmm. And I always thought it was funny that Guerrera, you know, like, I mean, it's pronounced a little differently here mm -hmm. and it's spelled different. It's spelled in, you know, Star Wars spelling, but like basically means warrior, mm, right? In, okay. in Spanish. Um, and Krieger or like Krieger means like 
uh, warrior in German. So Oh, that can't be a coincidence. That's interesting. It can't be. It can't be. I mean, I'm like, I don't know whether it's like some someone like had this specific thought. They're like, oh, just look up warrior in, in another language. Like, um, But so, yeah, you know, they're, they're having this conversation. Saw and, and Luthen are about like whether to like leave Krieger just out to die. Right. Yeah. And um, but, but yeah, and, you're exactly right, because also Guerrera is the the root Spanish word for where we get gorilla from. Right. Yes. But the German yeah. word Krieger is the formalized kind of warfare that von Clausewitz writes about where states are meeting on battlefields and fighting. It's a different kind of war. And they're literally saying mm. that's the kind of war we can't have. This is a revolution with guerrilla warriors. In it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, to me, it was such a good scene, especially because Luthen had just done so much to establish that, like, he is the end point. He will make the decisions, and and he gives this beautiful speech about all the things that, that he's had to give up and all this kind of thing. But then now he's kind of going against that a bit, and that he's bringing Saw into his decision-making process. And he's kind of saying, like, I want I want you to know this thing that I'm dealing with, and and... Like, I, I just found it really striking, especially because it seems like Luthen's kind of changing his mind now, or at least he's not sure. And he, he, and I wasn't sure if that's a kind of like, I want you to have to share the responsibility of this. I want someone else to have said we should do this or like it is doubting himself at all or just kind of what's going on there. I thought it was 100% pragmatic yeah. for what it's worth. I think he told Saw because he didn't see a way to not tell Saw. Mm-hmm. It, you know, in that conversation, he started off just being like, no, you can't join. It's too late. It won't work. And then finally, he's like, all right, the only way I'm going to, you know, to actually uh, get you to stand down is to tell you what's going on and and then make it make you feel like it's your decision, you know, even though like we both know what you're going to do. Or maybe maybe Luthen doesn't know what he's going to do, but he's like, I, I think he's he's like Andor where. He's constantly observing the situation, trying to control the situation, and when an opportunity presents itself, taking advantage of it, and when um, when something's not going to work, then trying to pivot to something else. Mm-hmm. You know, so I I did see like this is now he is um, sharing this burden kind of with saw right um and sharing the the decision making process with saw but i i don't think that was him going in and being like okay i'm i'm gonna change how i'm going about this i think it was the the ground was shifting under his feet and he was like okay this is how i have to uh pivot in order to to make this work still didn't it make him scary i i I found that it made luthan a more frightening character because to me, the frightening person is the person who only tells you what they think you need to know in a life or death situation. Yeah. Yeah. It would make him someone very difficult to work yeah. with. Right. <laughs> like, and so I was like, how can I trust you? Right. Well, especially because he makes very clear the sort of like humanity. I realized I don't want to just throw Krieger away. It's it's wrong to like have these 30 people be killed. Like not only does Luthen not say that, he's very clear that he is not saying that. He's he's very clearly right. saying like I have no problem sacrificing people. I am now not sure if I should sacrifice these people. Which yeah, I thought was both very like it was chilling, mm. you know, but also in that like I 
it, it's so it, it's just it's just such a wonderful story dynamic of seeing someone you know like I'm currently looking at like the concept of villains and how one of the ways villains are often defined is that they have like the wrong way to get to a good goal. You know, like we, we kind of agree with what they want, but they're going to extreme or something like that. That's technically Luthen, but that's not how he's described at all because he's been presented up till now mostly as a hero. It's just that as he's going further and further along, we're becoming more and more like seeing more and more of the, of the, the length he's willing to go to. And, I'm both chilled and and kind of like I I don't want that, but also like, do I want to be saying, oh, you can't, you have to keep your hands not that dirty while you're fighting this horrific galactic empire and fascism? Like it, it's, but it's making me question myself in a lot of ways, which I think is exactly what the show is trying to do and why I love it. I can't tell if his doubt is moral or tactical. Mm. Mm. Oh, oh, I I thought he specifically yeah. says that it's not moral; it's ta- it's pragmatic. Doesn't he? Specifically, say to Saw that that this is just a pragmatic concern. I didn't believe him, but I mean, the mm, the, the, the the point is, um, if he can talk about if he's like using the tactical stuff to help fuel his moral doubt, that is an interesting, complex mm. character move, right? Um, I, I don't think it is a problem tactically, I, but I do think it is a problem morally. And I think he's trying to figure out how to say that without saying that. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's like a large extent to which we don't really know who he is yet. Mm -hmm. And maybe we never will. Uh, we know what he wants, right? (laughs) But he tells a different story to to each person he talks to. And, you know, he's, is he acting now when he's talking to saw or is he acting when he's in, I mean, he's clearly acting when he's uh, in the gallery. Right. But is that more how he was before? And now he's, you know, trying to maintain that facade, which maybe was who he was at some point, or is that just an entirely fabricated character by him? And, you know, is this, you know, meeting you in the depths of Coruscant spy figure, like, is that a created persona as well? Or is that like the real him? Um, You know, it's unclear. And it did seem like he didn't want to... um, burn Cassian, right? Like, he didn't want to go and kill him, but, like, it seems like Clea is like, well, you know that's, you know, what you have to do in order to, um, you know, preserve what we've built. Right. And and it seems like now he wants to go and take care of it himself, even though she's like, no, you should stay away. There's too much heat there, basically. And we already, you know, have an agent there um, who doesn't know who you are, right? right. So she can't give you up. Um but I will be – I do think, like, there is this uncertainty yeah. just in terms of, like, who he – who is he? What does he want? Is, is – or what – what does – does he want to go about things in a different way? Well, I'm, Does he – I'm still on the theory that we talked about some last episode in that I think the person who is most confused about what Luthen wants is Luthen. And, mm. I mean, like, he talked well, – you know, that great – Or how he wants to go about getting – doing it. Yeah, right? like, I mean, like, he, he talked in that great speech about all the things he's given up, and I think that there's definitely an element to when you're spending so much time putting on different personas, 
you can kind of start to forget who you are and forget what you know and i i right i like it, it's so interesting because I, I do think that like in his mind i think he thinks he's just being pragmatic and bringing in saw but i think there's some level of kind of what maybe you're saying matthew of like he he wants saw he wants a, a double check like he he's wondering like sh- is there something wrong with me that i'm not morally concerned about this what would saw think about mm-hmm. this or like and i i think that's what is so powerful about the character is i think in a worse show we would know exactly what he's thinking or because it would there would be one specific answer i don't think we're ever going to be able to say no it was exactly this or exactly that i think all of us are right i think they're all elements because He's a very complicated person, like most people are, with a lot of very complicated things happening in his head. Yeah. Well, in his uh, angry, I have been to the mountaintop speech, um, Mm -hmm. um, which is what I'm going to call it now. Um, In the last episode, he gave Mm -hmm. his angry, I have been to the mountaintop speech, like uh, the King's speech, right? Um, I may not get there with you. Um, (laughs) Very different tone, though. To it, it's angry. Yes, it's the, it's. But he, he, I I felt as though one of his problems is he recognizes he's not going to get recognized for what he's doing, mm-hmm. mm. and he wants to be recognized, um, and that's the problem right. with um, with I don't know revolutionary leaders. Um, as soon as you're recognized, you're not a revolutionary leader anymore. Right. Right. I, I mean, we we know that because we like we the audience know that Mon Mothma become a not only is she recognized in that world, like she becomes the you know the leader of the alliance and then the, the president of the New Republic, but also she's in the she's in the the novels and the, and the movies and all that. And like, I'd never heard the word Luthen until this show. He hasn't appeared as a character in any other piece of Star Wars, and so like, kind of like. What you said a couple times, Paul, about going into Rogue One, it may be that he's just doing spy stuff throughout A New Hope and Empire and all that, and we just never hear about it. It may be that he's dead, but certainly I don't think Princess Leia or Luke Skywalker ever hear about this Luthan guy, you know? And I think that's – it. it this kind of goes all the way back to something I was thinking before when you were talking about Marva and, and her being a hero. Because I was thinking that she's also – like Mon Mothma is definitely going to get recognized. Luthan might get recognized, though – you're, you're convincing me that maybe he's not, but certainly Marva's never going to. You know, she what right. she is doing is helping the rebellion in a lot of ways, too, but no one's ever going to know that at the Mon Mothma Luthan level. Yeah, for sure. She's not going to be on, like, a list of, you know, mm-hmm. heroes of, of the New Republic or whatever. If you put together a list of characters in this show of people who are clearly going to be important to the um, revolt, the more important they appear to be, the less they'll be recognized. Right. Um, it seems like Nemec wrote the actual book for them, and we're never going to know who right. he is. Um, and it seems like Luthen is establishing the methods from which it's going to happen. And without him, it won't. And we'll never know who he is. And, I did and, love and, and, really- and Andor yeah. is going to die nameless to get the plants out. I did love that it was just a second, but we learned that that Andor still has Nemec's like manifesto uh-huh. uh, that apparently he's got on an vo- audiobook of some kind, and that it, like so Nemec is still still with us in that little way. Right, it's in his um, his spy case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there were there were two like 
kind of I mean I don't know whether they're actually meant to be like references to like the born identity or not but or, or if it's Tony Gilroy just like you know using a similar thing because well it's a spy thing but um the thing where born where <laughs> born where where Andor and um oh jeez Mel, uh, Melshi right mm-hmm. Mel- yeah, our um, hanging off the cliff was like very reminiscent of when when Jason Bourne's like escaping from the um, uh, the embassy in uh, I think Zurich, and then he and then Andor goes through this spy case, which is you know with like weapons and cash and like documents in it, uh, which is also basically the, you know, the first scene where, where, you know, Bourne finds out he's born and not just born. Um, and it, it just felt like, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know whether it was intended to be like a, a nod to, to his own things. I feel like probably not. It's probably just like, you know, I mean, spies have cases with a bunch of stuff in them. But, are you referring um, in, I, I in the Bourne movies, which I haven't seen in a while, are you referring to like the, Oh my God, look how many passports that guy has moment. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. And then there's like all different currencies mm-hmm. and there's like a gun in there and he throws the gun out and then yeah. like mm-hmm. takes the currency and the, um, which this, this character is not throwing the gun out. <laughs> He's like one for you, one for me. I, I will say I had a little bit of a moment during that of, wait, no one has like rented his apartment this whole time that he's been, you know, in prison no, and then the, realizing the, oh no someone did well no let me finish and then realizing no someone did but somehow hasn't bothered to either open or move this suitcase that's just sitting in the middle of their closet no it's on top of the shower isn't it yeah it's on top of the shower oh is that where it is okay closet. yeah and i thought that might have been like his paramour in the bed sleeping oh i thought i saw someone with like mouth tentacles like the same person might still be there. It was an alien. Like that wasn't his. Yeah, place. it was an alien with like mouth tentacles. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I, and his, and his paramour next unclear. to the alien. Okay, maybe you know. That's that's you know, anything's possible. Uh, Mon Mothma's daughter wouldn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows? Maybe that was like some polyamorous, po- you know, polygamy situation. That that's certainly very traditional. But who knows? Anyway. Um, let, let's well, talk some about Andor because we're, we're almost to an hour and I want to, uh, keep wow. this pretty, not go to on too much longer. And once again, we've not talked about our titular character yet much. Um, and, and we don't get too much of a story, but I think it, it, we get a little bit of, of, like, I like seeing that he's kind of like in this place of, you know, they're, they're, they're out of the prison, but they haven't gotten away yet. Clearly there's some kind of search going on. Um, we don't know what's happened to, um, poor Kino, uh, and I'm afraid we're never going to find out. Although the memes that I've seen of him standing at the top with like a little, uh, you know, rubber ducky floaty thing around him are really great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like what, what do you think of the little bit we got of Ander's story and especially like uh, him having this encounter with these two native aliens uh, who wind up helping them? Well, so first of all, this episode had like aliens, droids and a space battle. So like, what is this? Star Wars or something? Yeah. All of a sudden? <laughs> but <laughs> it's funny. I've been reading a lot of like, I'm getting bothered by the lack of aliens, and Tony Gilroy, which just had it prepped up, is like, nope, we're gonna give you aliens right now. Yeah, it's like here we go. Um, and and, and yeah, I, I thought, and he wrote this episode, and it was the most Star Warsy yeah. episode. So 
Yeah, exactly. And and the first three, which also, I think, had uh, more, uh, you know, biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Like, um, the the middle ones, I think, were the, the most human-y. But, um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed that encounter. I thought it was, you know, the, it was an opportunity for Andor to basically talk his way out of a situation, mm-hmm. you know. And it, it did make sense that they were, um, at first, like, you know... You're you're the people who are here, you know, destroying our planet, and and like we learn, like yeah, the, you know, the empire is not just using this planet as a you know like penal labor camp planet. It's like they're they're also destroying the natural resources and not caring at all about you know the indigenous population, mm-hmm. and so it's just I I feel like they've they've hit us with that over and over and over without really like sitting on it for a long time all at once Mm -hmm. you know it's like because like to the empire like they don't care so it's like it's it's almost like it's a footnote but like obviously it's everything to the the people who who live there um and i like that they were suspicious of them at first but then ultimately let them go because they're like oh you're actually also victims of the empire okay go ahead you know yeah in some ways it told me how little the empire had interacted with these people that they didn't realize that like because yeah they just say like oh you're you're humans you're empire you're the people who dump all this stuff in our waters and it's only when they explain to them like no no no, we're just as anti-empire as you are yeah i thought it was really brilliant and i I just loved the like one of them speaking english and the other not and him Mm -hmm. him clearly he sounded like he spoke the English. Like in some ways, what he reminded me of is like listening to uh, you know uh, people who are indigenous to, to areas that American soldiers are who who pick up kind of like the pidgin English, like in Vietnam or Korea or you know parts of Latin America or anything like that. Um, and I it, it, yeah, it was it was a short scene. It was funny. It gave a little bit of like comedic levity, which I really appreciated. But yeah, it it, it was one more of those really really driving home like what what's happening in all these places that the empire is and i i think it's showing and or seeing all of that mm-hmm. right like like which i think he already knows but it's like he's just repeatedly confronted with it basically everywhere he goes right i mean you know they blame him for for bringing um you know the the empire down on on Ferrix, but like, you know, that's, I mean, first there was Canari and that was the Republic, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, kind of the same continuity. Right. And then, then Ferrix, and then he goes to Aldani where the, you know, the Dani have been driven off their, out of their, you know, their, out of their homes and, um, or their, their homeland. I mean, mm-hmm. if they're, you know, nomadic shepherds or whatever, I'm not sure, but, um, and then on uh, Nyamos, right, like you go there and you can't even walk down the beach without getting grabbed by a, a K2 droid and, and almost killed and then sent to prison to die and, and work for the rest of your life. And then on that prison planet, it's the same thing. You know, it's like literally everywhere. Um, and so I, I like how this episode had that one moment that's like the sort of can feel like the the turning point in a character, right? Where he, you know, his, his mom died and he wasn't there and he wasn't there because, you know, partially as a result of his own actions, like looking for his sister and then, and then you know, getting in the, in the fight and, and killing the two security guards um, or sentries. 
but also because of the empire, right? I mean, that's why he was running. That's why, you know, that fight happened basically in the first place because of because of the way the world is. And and so this is kind of this this powerful singular moment for him learning this and then, you know, staring off at the horizon like, you know, like Luke staring off at the horizon at the twin suns like maybe thinking like I want to do something about all this, but like a very different vibe. Um, (laughs) But the whole rest of the season has been moving him in that direction, right? It's like, it really is an arc. It's not like a character angle where it's just, there's this sudden pivot. Um, I think now he is like, well, what am I going to do now? And, and he's, he's newly free, right? But he also doesn't have a home to come back to in the same way that he did before because you know his, his mom's not there anymore um outside of being you know a brick in a wall now yeah i think it's all really true i, I think we're gonna um kind of see where that leads to in, in i i mean i've been excited for every episode and i'm with a show like this, you're always worried that they're going to like feel like it has to give some whiz-bang episode that's going to tie everything up. And I know that there's going to be a season two, but I feel like I'm I'm excited for next week's episode, but I'm not feeling like there's so much pressure on it that it has to do all these things that it can't possibly do. I think they've they've set it up very well that clearly there's going to be some kind of confrontation and um, Cyril is throwing his hat back into the ring. I mean, he had another great scene that I think we're going to have time to talk about. Like They're setting it all up in ways that I think are really be interesting to see where Andor's character goes and but it, it it just doesn't feel like it's overdone yet. It definitely doesn't feel like there's going to be a an, an unfortunate MCU third act CGI fight. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, but I, I I can't quite figure out what's going to happen except somebody is going to say climb. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I I will say that given in animation and in the books. The number of times that people have just utterly clowned tractor beams is so high. I don't think we'd seen it yet in live action. So getting mm. to see that, like, just every single time people have, like, been, oh, we're in a tractor beam. Oh, no, we'll get out of this. No worries. In the books, especially, it happens all the time. It's happened in Rebels a bunch of times. And now seeing it on live action, that definitely made me happy. And the ship was from Rebels, yeah, too, it, wasn't it? Yeah. The Which, ship, the, um, the, the kind of Imperial spy ship or whatever? Or yeah, the, yeah, the kind of mini... It, it's a triangle shape of the Death Star, the Republic cruisers, but with these huge antennas at the front and on the two sides. Right. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that. I mean, that, that like, sort of was, was one of those, like, you knew that there was some things about Luthan that you didn't know. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, he's actually a... Like a really serious pilot with these sick mods mm-hmm. on his ship, you know, it's like this is a spy ship, and um, see, seeing him actually de- like, yeah, the tractor beams feel like they're inevitable in live action, and like they're like irrelevant in a lot of <laughs> like you know animation and apparently the books. So um, it, it was nice seeing on the uh, in live action actually seeing that uh, yeah. I, I do think we might get a, a bit of a space battle in the in the third one in terms of like I don't know how much we're going to see about what actually happens at Spellhouse right um, I would imagine it's not a lot like this show really has a, a lot half- happening off screen mm-hmm. you know I, I do think Marva dying off screen felt right in terms of like 
you know, you don't need to see a body to know that someone's died. Like, and in terms of relating to, to Cassian, like that's, that's like the emotional weight here for the title character is that he wasn't there. Yeah. Right. So having us not be there at that moment also feels right. And not seeing more of Bix's torture, seeing like, you don't need to have another scene of like her getting tortured to see, like you just see her face. Yeah. You know, you see how she's holding herself like to, to see, to kind of infer like what she's been through. Right. Um, the prisoners escaping or not escaping, you know, how many do you think made it not enough, but like, we don't know. Right. And because Cassian will never know, he's not going to know. Right. We don't have to see, all these instances of the empire either hunting down or not hunting down prisoners, maybe he runs into one in the future, maybe not, you know? Um, but that's the thing, like when an individual's perspective, there's always going to be tons of things you don't know. And I think, um, the show is very selective in terms of what it doesn't show us. Uh, it does feel like the last episode, there's probably going to be this spell house thing, but then mostly it's everybody's going back to Ferrix, right? Luthen's headed there. Um, Cyril's headed there. Dedra's obviously still got her eyes on there. And, you know, Cassian's probably heading back there. It would be a really interesting choice if he doesn't go back there, both for the character <laughs> and the show. But I, I, that would surprise me. Yeah. And, and you're right um, about all the stuff. Like, I'm, as you were saying that, I was thinking that in most other shows, I, we would see the dead bodies of some other escaped prisoners, you know, or we might even see like the, 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 uh, TIE fighter thing that was flying overhead, like shooting some of them, you know, we, we would see Bix is getting tortured. We'd see more of this and we don't have to. And, and I think you're exactly right. Especially that, like, I think if we had watched her die, Marva, him learning about it by telephone would have had nowhere near as much effect because in the same way we're we're, we're having that same experience like oh wait she's dead how did that happen i wanted so much more with her which is exactly what andor has exactly all right well i think we should probably start wrapping up is there any other uh last comment either of you want to make about the show before we move on before we wrap up i will say two things um because i'm really slow on the uptake sometimes this is the first time i noticed that the um Andor title card music is different in every episode. Yeah, I think every three episodes, I, yeah. especially right. There's like yeah. the instrumentation changes, and it, I was like, oh wow, yeah, exactly. that 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 is a good way yeah. of subconsciously convincing us that this is a different thing, um, which yeah. which the show does really well. And also, I finally figured out the prison uniforms, which has been bugging me, but um, they're very reminiscent of the prison uniforms in um, um, George Lucas's first film, THX 1138. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice reference. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, ah, oh, that's where they're from. Um, but they, I looked it up and I was like, yeah, wow, they look very similar. Um, so that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Especially because Lucas yeah, at this I, point has no connection to it anymore. You know, since he sold all the rights, it's nice to have that, that kind of connection still, still happening. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, because Lu- Luthen's ship is a hot rod and like hot rods are a big deal here. Right. Um, for, for Lucas. And it looks a lot better than the Chrysler, than the, like the Chrysler town car. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hey man, you can you can hate that, but I love that car. That's fair. Paul, any last yeah, comments from you? Yeah, just I mean, I'm excited to see the last episode of the season. I'm I rate that I'll have to wait two years to see the second season, but whatever, such is life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're shooting it now, but like it 
it does feel like it's going to be a lot to try and pull together. But, um, you know, I, I trust them to do a good job of it and to not give me exactly what I expect. Yeah. But something that I don't expect, but hopefully um, appreciate nonetheless. And uh, yeah, the music I, I I loved when I watched the fourth episode and it's like they start introducing like these these drums under it, it was like the kind of like the drums of war or whatever. And um, yeah, the you know, that's just another just little subtle thing. And mm-hmm. and, you know, also just the logo in that intro music is like so cool looking. It really is. It, it really is. It just feels right for the show. Well, thank you both. And to our listeners, uh, we don't know what Andor is going to offer you, but uh, I want your help in figuring out what this podcast is going to offer you. I will continue to offer you cheesy transitions like that. That's never going to change. But once we do the last episode, obviously, we're going to um, probably go back to our coverage of Rebels. Um, I'm going to probably start watching some Resistance and might be talking about that. We've had a lot of great feedback coming in, and I want to have a lot more. So we'll do at least one, maybe two or three feedback episodes about Andor. But I want to know from you, what else do you want to know? So please contact us both with your Andor feedback uh, and also just to know what's more content that you want to see while we're between shows. I think Ahsoka is the next one coming, and that's not till early in the new year. There might be something else. Uh, I think Bad Batch season, as you know, Bad Batch season two, I think is coming right at the end of the new, uh, this year or the beginning of next. But when we're not doing that, uh, it's a great time for us so we can do more coverage of the books. We can do kind of deeper dives into particular topics. We can do uh, anything you're interested in. So please write in. Let me know your and or feedback. Let me know what you want to see more of from this podcast. Uh, if you're just the sort of person who just tunes in when we have new content, you're going to unsubscribe and then come back during Bad Batch. Totally get it. and Still love to have you listening, but we'd also love to keep you around. So let us know the kind of thing you want to hear. Uh, you can f- send us that by going, just emailing uh, Matthew at theethicalpanda.com. Doesn't matter if you capitalize it or not. Uh, theethicalpanda.com. And you can just go to the website theethicalpanda.com and find all the information on our website about how to contact us, give us feedback, uh, find the other podcasts that I'm doing, uh, find out all the other cool stuff. So please do that. And of course, uh, both Paul and Matthew are also doing other great stuff. Uh, Matthew, short of moving to Brooklyn and applying for a Bachelor of Arts education, uh, though I imagine studying with you is awesome. Uh, what are you up to these days? Right now, I am editing a book on the Horizon Zero Dawn games, which um, is a thing that has reminded me that if you don't do um, um, borrowing from other cultures carefully, you can really screw it up. Um, Oof. And uh, so that's why the Andor is so good. Um, so I'm working on that because it's part of my uh, series, uh, academic books uh, called Studies in Gaming, um, which you could find just by googling studies and gaming in my name um we've got about 50 titles now and the next one coming out next year that you're going to like matthew is um on magic the gathering so you should be very excited by that um and so i'm just working on those and trying to make my students learn um but i have some great (laughs) i have some great students this semester so i have nothing to complain about um so yeah that's it and you can find that and you can find me on facebook probably by my name awesome um, and I know that um, no talking to people November is still going on for you, Paul. Is there any um, content you've created recently or should people just kind of wait for the bat signal to go back up before they start Googling for Zen Madman? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can I'm still Zen Madman in a bunch of places that may or may not get deleted at some point. <laughs> I have a website, ZenMadman.com, that doesn't really have anything on it now, but may at some point, mm-hmm. which I may or may not tell you about at some point. And I might write some other stuff that I don't even publish under my own name. So that's totally irrelevant to this conversation. <laughs> but uh in terms of like recent stories that I've thought of that 
will likely not write myself. Uh, I'm just going to say, like, B2E's, like, reaction to, to Marva's death made me really think one Star Wars story that I'd love to see that I doubt we'll ever get is, like, R2's life right after Anakin becomes Vader. Oh. Like, you know? Because, like, they were tight. You know, and I, I know that I think you're right that we probably won't get it officially, but I also know that Star Wars has a huge uh, fan fiction community, many of whom are listeners, and has been reassured to me not all fan fiction is about sex. Uh, there is some other great stories out there, too. So, yeah, if you found the uh, uh, R2-D2 after Anakin stories, um, which may involve him finding comfort in the arms of a Gronk droid, or may not, uh, either way, yeah, uh, send us the link, because I'd love to love to know what kind of, if people have been writing that stories, or if they haven't. Yeah, or write it and send it in. Yeah, write it and send it in. We'll uh, give you some credit in some way, shape, or form. Cool. Thank you both so much. Thank you all you listeners for sticking through us. Hope you've been really enjoying the show. Hope you stick around as we go into new territory after next week. And most importantly, have a good day while you fight your own revolution. <laughs>